Hello, it's John Dennis on Tuesday the 15th of December. Today, the Christmas plans of a million passengers are hit by industrial action by British Airways workers. We'll be advising British Airways that the strike will begin uh, with a 12-day strike starting from the 22nd of uh, December. Gordon Brown jets in to Copenhagen two days earlier than scheduled in an effort to push the UN summit on climate change towards agreement. There's more than 100 countries who still want a deal which does not um, allow temperatures to go more than 1.5 degrees centigrade over what they are now. That is almost impossible. There's no, there's no rich country which is going to agree to that. As Miliband, as our climate secretary said today, effectively they're just going to have to accept it. You'll hear from Morgan Freeman about his new film Invictus, in which he plays Nelson Mandela. Doing this movie and telling this story and... Uh, giving South Africans another look at themselves at a high moment in their existence. It's a good thing. And The Guardian launches an iPhone app. It actually tailors the content and presents it and designs it in a way that's specifically going to look good and be usable and functional on the iPhone. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, here's Bill Overton with the news. The Conservative lead over Labour has been reduced to single figures, according to a Guardian ICM poll. The Tories have gone down two points to 40%, while Labour are up by the same proportion to 31%. This would, however, still probably give David Cameron a narrow majority in a general election. It's the fourth month in a row that Labour's increased its share of the vote in this poll. Both Gordon Brown and the Prince of Wales are joining the Copenhagen Climate Change Summit today. The Prime Minister is putting himself forward as a broker in the talks after they stalled completely for some hours yesterday. Poorer countries accused richer ones of trying to avoid tough controls on carbon emissions and Gordon Brown hopes to argue the case for the developing world. The Prince will give a keynote speech saying mankind has the power to bring the world back from the brink of disaster. The first of Britain's extra 500 troops have arrived in Afghanistan. They're from the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. Defence Secretary Bob Ainsworth is later announcing what he'll have to cut to pay for the extra expenditure in Afghanistan. An RAF base is expected to be closed and defence jobs in Whitehall are also under threat. The National Audit Office has criticised the MOD for short-term cost-cutting, saying it actually ends up costing more. The government predicts youth unemployment will start to fall next year. The Works Secretary Yvette Cooper is promising 100,000 new jobs, apprenticeships and training for under-25s. The TUC says joblessness for the young is a national emergency. The trade union organisation believes more than 1.5 million youth are now out of work, which is worse than the situation in the 1980s recession. The strike by British Airways cabin crew is the main story in the morning papers. 12 days of chaos is our headline, while the Mail calls it BA's 12 strikes of Christmas. The Times and the Telegraph expect it'll hit a million passengers. All the papers agree other airlines won't have the spare seats to take up the bookings. The Independent reports BA managers believing the dispute to be a fight to the death. The other front pages uh, include our polls, showing Labour continuing to creep back up the polls. Uh, we also report from Milan on Silvio Berlusconi after he was smashed in the face. Our man says he told doctors he expected such an attack because there is a climate of hatred. The Financial Times reports Abu Dhabi is spending $10 billion to bail out Dubai, which has cheered the stock markets, of course. The paper also says Alistair Darling standing firm against banks threatening to leave Britain because of the 50% super tax on bonuses. The Telegraph quotes a report.
report from the Institute of Education about advertising on the internet as much as television. The headline reads, children have no escape from aggressive advertising. In the tabloids, the Express has decided to join the climate change sceptics camp with a front page spread arguing for a hundred reasons why global warming is natural and there's no proof that human activity is to blame. It quotes a group called the European Foundation, which says a higher level of carbon dioxide is not a problem because it boosts crop yields. There's more news and sport throughout the day at guardian.co.uk. A million passengers have been hit by a decision by British Airways cabin staff to strike over Christmas. Members of the Unite Union voted 9 to 1 in favour of industrial action. We're hoping, of course, <coughs> that we can avoid that dispute. We're hoping that, even at this late stage, that British Airways will return to the negotiating table and try to resolve the outstanding issues. Uh, our Joint General Secretaries, Tony Woodley and, um, uh, and Derek Simpson, both met with uh, the Chief Executive last Friday and asked exactly that, that we take a pause, that the company step back from this confrontation mm. and that we try to discuss things in more detail. That was turned down. We're hoping that the size of this vote will make the company think again. The walkout by 12,500 cabin crew between 22nd of December and the 2nd of January will ground Heathrow Airport's largest carrier and it'll affect around 910,000 passengers. These were some of the comments on the Flyer Talk message board. We were meant to be flying out to Seattle on the 23rd of December to surprise my fiancé's family. They just moved out there this summer. We were so looking forward to being able to see them, her more so, clearly, as she's been wedding planning without being able to get them involved. So, thank you, BA crew. I truly hope this is worth it for you. I imagine that if a 12-day strike does go ahead, life for cabin crew will be pretty difficult upon their eventual return. I've booked £2,000 worth of flights for my very hard-working mother and sister for a trip to New York on December the 19th. I paid on my credit card, fortunately. I can't see how strike action will do anything other than damage the company's position, which will just result in more cost-cutting and redundancies. The editor of guardian.co.uk slash money is Hilary Osborne. Hilary, what are passengers' options as far as BA is concerned? Well, they're being given the choice by BA. If they're travelling in the period when the strike's on, they can opt to choose a new flight any time in the next 12 months or if they need to travel over the Christmas period, they um, BA will try and reroute them. Or if their flight is going to be cancelled, they'll be offered a refund. But it doesn't sound much comfort for passengers who, you know, they're trying to get to their loved ones at Christmas. I mean, it just there, there aren't going to be that many flights um, available uh, on other airlines that will be able to take people that, you know, need to go and see their family or whatever. It's not much comfort and it's going to be a real quandary for people, actually, because flights have already sold out on some of the popular routes. And they're going to be getting fewer and further between over the next few 
days. So, and, and customers may be tempted to just say, right, I'm definitely not going on BA. I'm going to grab one of these flights or maybe even go on the Eurostar, grab one of these tickets while I still can. But they've got a real problem because if BA and the union then decides to, to get back into talking to each other and the strike is cancelled, they won't actually be entitled to get their money back from BA. So they have to make a real decision about whether they take the risk or not. What about passengers who are flying on the days either side of this 12-day period? Because they're going to be affected as well, aren't they? I believe that the four, if they're due to travel 48 hours either side, they're covered by the um, option that they can cancel this flight and, and take another one within 12 months. But if you're traveling sort of several days after, who knows what the backlog is going to be like? So they could get really caught up in this and actually not have that much choice about what to do. Hilary Osborne. Well, the strike was announced at a meeting of Unite members at Sandown Racecourse after a ballot over changes to staff numbers and budgets. Our transport correspondent Dan Milmo was there. Well, negotiations have been going on for several months now. I think one side, uh, the BA management side, have just decided that enough is enough. This is an airline that lost 401 million at the pre-tax level last year and is set to lose around 600 million at the pre-tax level this year. But can it afford this strike? Um, according to one estimate, um, a two-day strike will cost 50 million pounds. So 12 days, therefore, um, probably uh, in the region of 300 million. Um, BA can afford it financially. It has access to cash of around 2 billion. I must add, that's cash that it's set aside to see it through the, the rainy days of the recession as opposed to unilateral you know, strike action. So it can probably weather it financially. I mean, reputationally is, is, a, is a different thing. Dan Milmo, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash transport. Also on the Guardian's website today... Hi, I'm Ros Taylor from Comment is Free, and we've got three things coming up today which I'm quite excited about. The first is by Naomi Klein, uh, author of No Logo, of course, and The Shock Doctrine. She's in Copenhagen with the protesters, uh, the summit there, and she will be talking about the police tactics there, which have been pretty heavy We also have Emily Apple, who is uh, another of the testers, about her experience of being penned in at the summit. Another thing we have today is Anna Macera from La Stampa online in Italy, and she's going to be writing about the attack on Silvio Berlusconi at the weekend. He had his nose broken. There's quite a history of violence in Italian politics, and she's going to be tracing some of that and asking whether Italians are returning to some of their old ways. All that and more on Comment is Free. That's guardian.co.uk slash comment is free. Next on Guardian Daily, we go to Copenhagen, where there are only four days left on the official timetable to reach a deal. John Vidal, Environment Editor. Um, Yesterday we had a very, very dramatic day. Within an hour of the last week of negotiations started, we had seven African countries who took the stage and basically said uh, the the deal is off unless the United Nations absolutely changes the architecture of these talks. And they're very, very specific. They wanted what's called the Kyoto Protocol, which is the only legal agreement uh, which the world has to get rich countries to reduce emissions to, to save that. There was a big move, a big feeling that uh, the UN um, and the talks were going to ditch it. They came out very, very strongly. Africa is on a death row. And Africa has been sidelined by some countries having nothing to do with any mentioning of the word Kyoto Protocol. That is the legally binding instrument. Let us hope that Hagen will not be a dashed hope for the developing country. 
the Kyoto Protocol took seven years to enter into force. The next treaty, I'm sure that it will take more than that. And this provoked an enormous crisis. And then the UN and Connie Hennigard, the Danish host, had to really dampen things down. Um, it took five hours. They lost five hours negotiation. As Ed Miliband, our climate secretary, said, we did not cover ourselves in glory yesterday. In other words, right here at four minutes to midnight, his words, four minutes to midnight, they lose five hours. It's a very, very serious blow. But they are still confident. I mean, it's extraordinary. They still believe that they can do it. Um, and uh, the reality is it's not going to be a very strong deal. That's the way we see it. Today is going to be equally fascinating because as the talks continue, so the tension mounts and the stakes rise and the time gets shorter. And it will be three minutes to midnight, I think, in, in, in metaphorical terms. Gordon Brown's coming in today. He's coming in two days early because he wants to not take charge of the financial talks, but he, that is where he believes that he can do the most good. The other event will be Prince Charles coming in um, this afternoon, maybe five o'clock, giving a big, big speech. We don't know what it's about, but we can expect it to be about forests because he has taken a very great personal interest in his Rainforest Foundation. There are still two major sticking points here, one of which is the money. Short-term money uh, looks pretty settled now. Um, yesterday we got indications that uh, it's gone up from uh, an offer of 10 billion a year to help uh, developing countries adapt to climate change uh, between 2012 and 2050 from 10 billion dollars a year and it's gone up now to effectively 30 billion which is a very very big sweetener so I think uh, they will um, they will jump at that. Uh, the problem they have is the long-term money um, and that is far, far from certain. Um, the, the, the developing countries want $400 billion a year to be transferred to them from 2020 onwards. The best that uh, the offer at the moment is basically 100, of which 50 billion, half of it, um, would not really be very acceptable because it's from carbon trading and things which are not really reliable. And there's more from the Guardian team in Copenhagen at guardian.co.uk slash environment. I'm John Dennis. Still to come in Guardian Daily, John Carlin, the author of Playing the Enemy, the book about Nelson Mandela and the 1995 Rugby World Cup that's inspired Clint Eastwood's new film Invictus. My book spans a period of 10 years and it's, and it's really about how Mandela achieved two extraordinary feats, political feats. One of them was to turn his people away from vengeance and resentment towards reconciliation. And secondly, to persuade white South Africans that they should not fear his presidency. But first, if you're listening to this podcast on an iPhone, you'll be needing one of these. If you haven't got one already, it's the new Guardian app. Here's Media Talk presenter Matt Wells. Most listeners to this podcast are probably fairly technologically aware, so most people probably know that basically an app, an application that's short for, is... Uh, is a piece of software that allows the Guardian, in this case, the, the uh, Guardian content to be optimised for a particular device, in this case, the iPhone. So rather than just looking at the Guardian website in the browser, such as Safari, that comes with uh, the iPhone, it actually tailors the content and presents it and designs it in a way that's specifically going to look good and be usable and functional on the iPhone. There's a particular advantage uh, to getting this app if you're a regular listener to Guardian Podcast. Yes, yes there is, because there's a uh, special audio section. It's very easy to get all the uh, latest, latest Guardian audio without coming out of the 
Guardian iPhone app and then going into iTunes to get your Guardian audio. It's all in the same place, so you can be browsing your favourite Polly Toynbee article or your favourite Charlie Brooker column, and then you can click on the latest edition of Guardian Daily and you can listen to it all in the same app application without having to to do any other complicated manoeuvres. It's all it's it's re- relatively intuitive if you've got an iPhone already and you know how uh, how these apps work. There are full instructions on the Guardian website if you want that. But it does cost money. Yeah, it's uh, interestingly, this is one of the interesting aspects of this, is that the Guardian is charging £2.39 where, for, uh, for each download of the, of the application. That's a one-off it is payment. A, it's a one-off payment, although there are, there are there is small print in the terms and conditions that says the Guardian can may charge for further functionality, but uh, but certainly for version 1.0, it's a, a one-off charge of two pounds thirty-nine. It is only available in the UK and Ireland for various complicated tax reasons, I understand, but I, I also understand that's being worked on. Um, yes, no, the, the 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 issue of charging is interesting because, as regular listeners to the media podcast will know, this is a a really big issue in the media industry at the moment. Publishers are finding it very difficult to charge for digital content. However, uh, The Guardian has said that uh, what what they're charging for here is the utility. It's because it's so convenient and because it presents The Guardian in a particular way that uh, The Guardian thinks that people will be prepared uh, to pay for it. And I think other Publishers will be uh, in, interestingly, of course. You know, the Telegraph has a similar app, and it's free. Sky News has a free app as well. I think other publishers like those will be watching the Guardian to see if it can successfully charge for this. Matt Wells, and you can buy that at the iTunes Store. Back in 1995, South Africa's national rugby team were associated with prejudice in the minds of many of their black countrymen. But Nelson Mandela, who'd led the struggle against apartheid to become president a year earlier, succeeded in uniting his country behind the Springboks, who went on to win the Rugby World Cup. The remarkable story is the subject of Invictus, the new film directed by Clint Eastwood. I think he wants us to win the World Cup. Rugby is a political calculation. It is a human calculation. According to the experts, we'll reach the quarterfinals and no further. According to the experts, you and I should still be in jail. Times change. Morgan Freeman told our South Africa correspondent David Smith about his role as Mandela. Trying to get as much of him as possible, you know, working at him from the inside out as best I could. Was it daunting? Well, once we get started, no. But th- th- thinking about it, yeah. And, and how important do you think his gesture was in terms of getting the nation behind the Springboks? Well, uh, where are you from? UK. You should ask the uh, South Africans. <laughs> you know what I mean? I-, I think it was very important. Very, very important. And was this movie enjoyable? Yeah, you mean the making of it? Yeah. Oh, it was great fun. Working with Clint Eastwood again, so I couldn't beat that. Doing this movie and telling this story and uh, giving South Africans another look at themselves at a high moment in their existence, it's a good thing, I think. Morgan Freeman. Well, Invictus is based on the book Playing the Enemy, Nelson Mandela and the Game That Changed a Nation. Its author is John Carlin. The initial idea that I had in mind for quite a long time didn't do anything about it was to write a book about Mandela because I, 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 was, I was based here between 1989 and 95 and I covered the Mandela phenomenon from the, you know, from the front row as one does as a journalist and I 
got to meet him and interview him you know, several times. And so I felt I had a unique privilege in having been there at that particular time and having developed you know, something of a relationship with him. So the, 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 the initial idea was to find a way to write a book about Mandela. And then suddenly one day, in about the year 2000, the, the, the light bulb came on. And I understood that the way to do it was to fuse it with the story of the Rugby World Cup final, which is actually only the, the conclusion of my book. I mean, my book spans a period of 10 years, and it's, and it's really about how Mandela achieved two extraordinary feats, political feats. One of them was to turn his people away from vengeance and resentment towards reconciliation and secondly to persuade white South Africans that they should not fear his presidency and indeed alter completely uh, white South Africa's relationship with him. When he left prison in 1990 most white South Africans thought the government was completely mad because they'd been programmed to regard him as a the great communist terrorist the sort of South Africa's Osama bin Laden and in the space of five years Mandela manages to turn that around to the point that practically the whole of white South Africa crowns him king at this you know, Rugby World Cup final. And you know, I've been a journalist now for 27 years and I've been a foreign correspondent in many places and I must have written in about 40 countries and I've never come across either a more remarkable or extraordinary or admirable political figure than Nelson Mandela and I've never come across a more extraordinary, euphoric, um, significant political event as the Rugby World Cup final of 1995. So there was a certain logic in, in, in fusing the two. John Carlin talking to David Smith. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily, along with Andy Duckworth in Copenhagen. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Listener.